FX Omics is brought to you by Bioceuticals Clinical Services. Welcome to FX Omics with Dr. Mark Donahue, your gateway to genetics, research, and technology in the field of personalized medicine. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Professor Michael Fennick is my guest today, and he's recognized internationally for his research in nutritional genomics and genetic toxicology. He's also played a huge part in the careers of many geneticists, such as Denise Furness, well known to many of our listeners. In the past eight years, he's presented at over 55 international conferences, Google Scholar H Index is 84, and based on a staggering 31,000 total academic citations, he is a giant in the field of toxicology and genetics. Michael co-founded the HUMN project on micronuclei in human populations in 1997, and now in 2018, he's established the Genome Health Foundation to promote education research and translation of knowledge on environmental and lifestyle factors that cause or prevent DNA damage. Today, we'll be talking with him about his work, especially in the area of micronuclei and the importance of his discoveries in clinical practice. Hi, and welcome, Professor Michael Fennick. I'm here, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's our pleasure. Um, we've talked a lot to Denise Furness uh, about uh, nutrigenomics and areas of genomics and genetics in the past. What I'm keen to get from you as the kind of uh, grandfather in this area, shall I say, of genetics and uh, toxic toxicogenomics is a bit of a, a take on the difference between toxic injury, DNA damage, chromosomal damage, SNPs. We're, we're being lumped as practitioners with all of these ideas and people use the term mutation and damage in very, very loose terms. So I'm trying just to talk with you about what kind of damage occurs from what kind of areas, what's the difference between SNPs and mutations, are they the same, they're used uh, interchangeably sometimes. So I just want to work through a few of those because of your background in nutrigenomics and toxicogenomics. I thought what we'd do is just start with what kind of things damage chromosomes and damage DNA? What kind of environmental, nutritional, and other factors are we talking about that can cause damage to our genetic structure? So let's first of all start by imagining a world where there aren't any toxins in the environment that could harm DNA. That's a long time ago. Okay. Well, uh, probably it's never been. It's probably never been. You're right. Oxygen has always been okay. out there for a billion years, hasn't that's, it? That's right. But let's let's try to imagine that. Now, if that were the case, um, we still need, uh, the cells in the body still need nutrients to make copies of DNA, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, the building blocks of DNA are the, the bases, uh, A, T, G, C. And we need nutrients to be able to synthesize those. Right. Uh, and some of the key nutrients include folate, uh, vitamin B12, zinc, magnesium. The B vitamins, folate, uh, folate in particular, is needed to uh, synthesize, to make the, the DNA bases. And other cofactors, such as zinc and magnesium, are needed for the DNA polymerases to make copies right. of the DNA. 
So uh, if one is deficient in these nutrients, uh, amongst others, and there are, there are uh, other nutrients needed, um, then the ability to make accurate copies of DNA uh, is diminished, and as a consequence, mutations accumulate uh, within, the, uh, within the genome. Just mistakes of copying rather than just, damage just, to just, anything. Just mistakes of copying or incomplete copying that leads to breaks in the DNA, for right. example. Uh, it could also be mutations that are epigenetic. In other words, the inability to replicate the epigenetic marks properly mm -hmm. or to erase them and so on. Um, so nutrition alone can cause a, a lot of mutations when there is uh, deficiency, uh, but also when there is excess. Um, so that that that's the first thing to consider that nutrition has to be optimal to minimize DNA damage due to defects in making good copies of DNA. Because there are billions of base pairs, so it is an extraordinary copying issue every time a cell divides, well, isn't it? That's happening all the time in yeah. our body. Yeah. So you start you start life as one cell, and that makes another copy of itself, and so on and so forth. So, from the very beginning, you um, you can accumulate damage. You effectively can start aging from the very first vision, if uh, if there is malnutrition. Now right. that is just nutrition. Um, now, uh, within the body itself, uh, certain chemicals can be generated that are also genotoxic, okay? like um, hydroxyl radicals, for example, or formaldehyde. These are generated uh, endogenously within the body and within cells. In normal metabolism? In normal metabolism. Okay. And when they occur in normal levels, right? the cell can cope with that because it can easily detoxify them. But if there are any metabolic blocks that uh, result in the accumulation of these toxic metabolites, then they too will induce DNA damage uh, within the body. Now, these metabolic blocks can happen again because of deficiencies in, in cofactors and nutrients. Okay? Yep. Um, so if you're deficient in zinc or manganese, then superoxide dismutase may not function well, or or the uh, the DNA uh, repair enzyme HOGG1 may not function well, which means it cannot repair oxidation to guanine, for example. Right. Um, and for these reasons, again, nutrition can therefore disable the detoxifying potential of the of the cells in the body. Okay. So that's the nutritional side, very, very briefly. And uh, on the environmental side, uh, then, of course, there are the environmental factors that we worry a lot about, that uh, we are exposed to, either because uh, these contaminants are in our environment. Uh, we're talking now about man-made um, Contaminants. There could also be natural contaminants, let's say, from produced by plants and other organisms. Right. And of course, uh, there's also the, uh, the potential of genotoxic effects from 
uh, ultraviolet uh, radiation and ionizing radiation mm -hmm. as well. Now, again, the uh, there are detoxifying and the DNA repair mechanisms that are built into the cells in the body. Um, but these can be readily overwhelmed when the toxin, genotoxin level in the environment is above a certain threshold. And that will vary depending on each genotoxicant. And I guess each individual as well because of that inability to repair or the SOD levels or things like that oh. very massively, I would guess, from person to person. Absolutely. We know that there is very, uh, variation between people. I mean, we've done tests where we've challenged, the, let's say, the blood cells of 10 different individuals, and you can see the difference right. amongst them uh, in terms of the DNA damage that wasn't used. Usually, there are not huge differences amongst you know, the general population, but there would be, let's say, uh, 1 in 100 or 1 in 50 people that would be particularly sensitive to one or more genotoxicants. And they, they would really be very sensitive mm. to that damage. Um, one example that comes to mind is a common mutation in the gene ataxia telangiectasia. Um, uh, it codes for the protein uh, ATM, and ATM is one of those key uh, proteins in cells that senses DNA damage and then recruits the DNA repair machinery mm -hmm. uh, to, to repair that. And one in a hundred of us are heterozygotes for a mutation that disables this gene and the, the DNA damage sensitivity, particularly to, D, to DNA strand breaks, is increased, and of course, in the homozygotes, it's it's uh, massively increased, particularly yeah. bad. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's just one one DNA repair gene, and there's a, more than 120 of them, which affect different kinds of lesions on the DNA. So, the kind of toxicants that we're talking about, the I mean, we have the endogenous ones, the formaldehyde, the superoxides, and the uh, hydroxyl radicals we are producing in the trillions of molecules every second, I'm guessing. So we have a balanced system of repair versus the metabolic damage, the necessary metabolic damage of just oxidative phosphorylation. Yeah. When... When you exceed that, so I'm just thinking of someone, say, athletics, uh, athletes that are at a very high level of oxygen turnover, can you endogenously intoxicate yourself with metabolic processes or do our metabolic processes and repair mechanisms match up with each other? Okay, so it's a good question. So a bit of stress is, is not bad as long uh, because it can help uh, upregulate the defense mechanisms. Right, so there is a a capacity to adapt to the stress, mm -hmm. right? And in athletes, um, athletes usually tend of tend to have a strong capacity to adapt to the increased stress. Right, right. However, uh, there is again a strong inter-individual variation in the capacity to adapt. In other words, to to upregulate the defense mechanisms in response to stress. So those who actually uh, um, become high-performance athletes um, 
can do so because of this increased inherent capacity for adaptation right. to, to the stress. In other words, they have a phenotypic flexibility that is better than in other people. Whilst, in, in, for example, in my case, I know there's a limit of uh, physical exercise I can do. If I try, try to go beyond that, it actually doesn't do me any good. I'm guessing that changes with age as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course, it would change with age. That's right. right. So is this the NRF2 kind of process of moderate stressing, moderative oxidative stressing, inducing a protective response that's being talked about in all of our conferences now? The adaptation can occur at many different levels, and and the NRF2 pathway is one of those that uh, relates to uh, the information. Right. Um, but there are there are, it, this occurs at, at many different levels. Okay. It can occur at the DNA repair level. It can occur at the antioxidant response level. Um, it can occur also maybe at the level of the ability to absorb nutrients into the body uh, when mm-hmm. there is a, a slight nutritional deficiency. Right. Um, so, yeah. So it, it's not just to one pathway. It, okay. it would be through every possible pathways um, and because of the network, metabolic network, um, the, the intricate uh, uh, metabolic network in the, in the cells. So they are interdependent and nutrition, a kind of foundation of good nutrition and availability of micronutrients is a kind of blanket of a, the necessary protective responses. But then there are overloads that are going to, there's almost going to be obligatory damage. I'm thinking of, you know, radiation exposure, those types of things, genotoxic chemicals that our body's not prepared for it are not really inducible enzymes that we can protect ourselves with. So what are the threats from outside that have the biggest impact on whether chromosomal breakage or DNA repair shortfalls? What what kind of things should we be looking for as clinicians, especially, to try and yeah. reduce that? I mean, first of all, we sh- uh, one can start from those exogenous genotoxicants that we have control over and those that we don't, mm-hmm. right? So the ones we have control over are the ones that we put into our body through our mouth or or put on our skin, right? For yeah. whatever reason. Um, now, uh, in terms of the, the diet, we know that uh, uh, the way we prepare food can increase uh, genotoxicants in the food. So every time when you brown food, right, at high temperature, mm-hmm. the browning reaction, uh, the reason you see the browning is because you are creating new chemicals. Mm. So when we cook at high temperature, you know, in this protein and sugars that creates um, myelard reaction products, such as lyoxal, um, which are geno- genotoxic, potentially genotoxic, depending on the form. Mm. Um, when you barbecue meat, when the fat goes on the charcoal and that is burnt, the smoke that is generated contains polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. When you pan fry meat at high temperature, uh, the browning reaction uh, generates uh, heterocyclic aromatic amines, which are also genotoxins, uh, and so on and so forth. So 
it's not that you sh- shouldn't absolutely that you should avoid these things altogether, but of course it's better to to minimize exposure to to genotoxicants, especially if you have control over that. Right. Um, alcohol is a, is another example. Um, so there is this well, alcohol is converted to acetaldehyde into the body, and acetaldehyde is a carcinogen. I did not and, know that. Which is not, not normally detoxified to acetate. Hmm. However, the ability to do the detoxification varies greatly between people because there is a, a common polymorphism in the acetaldehyde dehydrogenase enzyme. And, uh, and th- this has already been shown many times that those people who drink alcohol and have this polymorphism um, accumulate more DNA damage in the body compared to drinkers who don't have this problem mutation. Can you pick that by acetaldehyde tends to leave the headaches and the problems, doesn't it? The people who are alcohol intolerant, can you pick that clinically or is that... Oh, yes, you can. There is a questionnaire called the TAST, T-A-S-T questionnaire. If you don't want to do the genetic test, right. you can use this. And... Um, and uh, phenotype the the patients or the clients in this manner. Right. So, yeah, so the, these symptoms of headache, dizziness, and so on. There's about, I think, seven, six or seven different uh, aspects to it. So for those people, alcohol is particularly genotoxic. I, I know the association of alcohol with nasopharyngeal or carcinomas or oropharyngeal carcinomas. So that is, I'm guessing, direct effect of alcohol on those areas and then maybe the acetaldehyde remaining for a prolonged period. Is that the kind of concept about how that would happen? Yeah, that is most likely the mechanism. For the mutation. Yeah, that that, that the, uh, well, alcohol gets metabolized quite rapidly Mm. to acetaldehyde. And then if the acetaldehyde is not detoxified, it will then cause, um, it will link with DNA and protein, right. it might cause cross-links, DNA protein cross-links. Uh, okay, so that, that's, what, that's what formaldehyde does, so right. formaldehyde would probably act similarly. So you've got rid of the barbecues and the beer. Yeah, we wouldn't want to get rid of them altogether, for heaven's sake, no. But it's just, just to be aware that that is a risk and right. that people vary in their susceptibility. So you wouldn't know, so on a social occasion, Right, right. Um, you wouldn't. Everybody's drinking the same amount, but the but the harm or benefit done uh, will vary between people. That's all. Okay. That's all one can say at the moment. And the problem is, you don't feel DNA damage, so yes. you wouldn't know. Yeah. Right, because the reason is that DNA damage will not kill you immediately. It's a it's it's a it's a cumulative thing, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, but the, the um, so it's not a life and death situation, which is why you don't feel it. But in the long run, it will get you in terms of the the risks. We know very clearly that the risks for developmental and degenerative diseases are increased as DNA damage right. goes up, and that that's unequivocal. That right. is definitely the case. I remember Bruce Ames had that um, that statement, which you need a mutagen and a mitogen. You not only have to damage DNA, you have to induce it to replicate if you're going to get a cancer. 
but I'm guessing some of these mutations result in replication anyway or loss of control of replication. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, as you age, you get more and more cells accumulated that are initiated, that have DNA damage, many cells. Yep. You know, we're, we're talking of more than a one in a thousand cells mm-hmm. with, with serious chromosomal damage. Yep. In fact, it would be more like one in a hundred if we base it on the micronucleus frequency alone. Right. And so that's a lot. A lot of your body, if you think about it, a big chunk of your body being massively mutated. <laughs> I don't know. It's quite okay. an image, but thanks yeah. for that. No, wow. sorry, but that's, that's 1%. I, I yes. did. I did not appreciate that. I, I was thinking of you know the one in hundred thousand, and that's a, probably an underestimate, right? Uh, so that uh, it's remarkable that we can uh, that we can still survive in that way. The, the ultimately what what kills you with cancer is when the cancer grows and metastasizes. Right. Now we now know in the past uh, um, five years or so. Some very interesting new knowledge has accumulated regarding micronuclei um, in that it's become uh, evident from a number of studies. So maybe I should say something about micronuclei before I continue. I think that would be great. What's the micronuclei? So um, micronuclei were discovered more than 100 years ago by Howell and Jolly, uh, who were hematologists. Um, uh, They observed these small nuclei in red blood cells. Uh, and they're known as Howell Jolly bodies, actually. So right. um, probably and through uh, during the medical degree, you might have heard about Howell Jolly bodies as part yes. of your hematology course. And the Howell Jolly bodies are micronucleus. At the time, it was not known what, what they were. But eventually... Um, you know, about 40, 50 years ago, it was observed that they increase in in mice uh, exposed to radiation and genotoxic chemicals. Um, and it became evident that they must arise from chromosomal aberrations. What actually happens is that when a chromosome is broken, the fragment, uh, the broken end of a chromosome, lacks the centromere needed to pull it to the poles of the cell during nuclear division. So it floats free. So it floats free, and and therefore, and as a result, it's not incorporated in the two-daughter nuclei during nuclear division, during mitosis. Mm-hmm. And then as it floats free, it forms its own membrane around it and makes a micronucleus. That's how it happens. In the, now, in the red blood cells, that happens in the bone marrow, in the normal blast the precursors of the, of the red blood cells. Uh, what happens in this case is the nucleus is, a, is taken out of the cell as it would normally, but the micronucleus remains. Right. Which is why you see then the Howell Jolly body or the micronucleus in the erythrocyte. Uh, and in fact, this uh, measurement of micronuclei and erythrocytes is one of the standard tests for genotoxic chemicals in the, in the mouse model. I think you were, you were deeply involved in producing that test, were you not? 
Um, I was involved mainly in producing an, uh, uh, the test with, with lymphocytes. Right. The, the erythrocyte assay you cannot really do in humans because the spleen removes the erythrocytes with micronuclei in them. So you don't right. see them unless you do some unique approach, which is, which is laborious. But the, uh, what I did was I developed an assay using human lymphocytes, mm-hmm. and which is, has the advantage that you can study the DNA damage both in vitro as well as in vivo in humans. Right. And this test is now um, a test and endorsed by the OECD. Uh, so there's a protocol how to do this, and it's used worldwide. And it's also uh, the test is also used ex vivo in people to study the effects of exposure to environmental genotoxins and dietary deficiencies. Right. And it's endorsed by the International Atomic Energy Agency to measure DNA damage following a radiation accident mm-hmm. for biodosimetry purposes. Is it more broadly applicable? Is this a test that can be used where there is clear nutritional deficiencies? Do you, do you get an answer on um, micronuclei assessment if the DNA repair or chromosomal damage is high for other reasons? Yeah. You do. <clears throat> so, so there have been lots of studies. Uh, I've contributed quite a lot to that, but so have many others, uh, as has Bruce Haynes as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so you can study the effect of nutritional deficiency using this test, right. both in vitro and in vivo. We showed, we published lots of papers on folate and zinc and selenium on, on this, both in vitro and in vivo, and the in vitro models and in vivo studies tend to agree with each other. Right. Um, so yes, you can do it for nutritional purposes as well as for environmental exposure purposes. And when you when you model in vitro, we can also see that the susceptibility to the environmental genotoxins yes. is increased if you are also deficient in nutrients needed for replication and repair. Okay, well, that, you've made sense of something that happened with a colleague of yours, Judy Ford who worked with us, we had uh, a clinic where people were exposed to high levels of pesticides back in the 90s. And I think yes. she was using your assay. And the micronuclei, yeah. the, the increased micronuclei was quite dramatic in that group. But they were people who were sick. They were not healthy. They'd been exposed yeah. to chemicals and somehow they had become sicker than most other people did. And yeah. uh, she found very high levels of the micronuclei on the assessments. She was criticized for it because, you know, the thought was this was radiation only or you had to have high genotoxic exposure. But in right. sick people, I'm guessing they're a different population. They're vulnerable to begin with. And so maybe the, the rules yeah. of what it takes are less. Yeah. So, in fact, um, there's a lot of work being done on micronuclei and disease. Right. Um in fact, we are organizing a workshop in May next year in Rennes, in France, just on this topic mm-hmm. on micronuclei and disease. Because the evidence is really uh, strong that micronuclei are increased in disease and 
the evidence that they predict the risk of disease has also increased. Okay, disease generally, as in across organ systems, across age groups, or something more specific? Yeah. Well, the initial studies um, were made in relation to cancer Mm. and uh, through a cohort of about 7,000 people around the world. And via the human HUMN project, we we showed that the Markinicris index predicts cancer risk. Right. So those with a medium to high level of micronuclei have about a 70% increased risk of cancer. Okay. Um, there have also been other studies showing that the higher micronuclear frequency predicts cardiovascular disease mortality. Um, we also did a study on uh, uh, during pregnancy, and Denise was involved in that study. She was a PhD student during that, showing that those at 18 weeks gestation, we took a blood sample from women who were pregnant and uh, showed that the high, higher level of micronuclei predicted the risk for preeclampsia and IUGR. Wow. Um, so, and this is what you would expect because cells that um, have micronuclei in them um, have difficulty in dividing. The rate of division slows down because of cell cycle checkpoints. So the ability to um, develop, you know, the circulation uh, in the placenta and so on, uh, to develop the blood cells and grow the cells for that purpose, gets diminished somewhat. And it's the placenta that does a lot of the signaling that causes the preeclampsia problems. And it remains yeah. a mystery in the medical circles. We just say it's mysterious, but you're saying that there can be a component of just straightforward damage that is unrepaired yeah. that slows down um, mm. cell replication. Yeah, so damaged cells have difficulty in dividing, oh. and the only way they can divide is to actually um, reduce the threshold of of um, of the checkpoint. Uh-huh. But in doing so, you then accumulate more damaged cells. Right. That in itself creates a problem. So I'll, I'll come back to these new developments that have occurred recently okay. with regard to the Marconitis Index. So first, what's being discovered is, um, and these are all papers published in top in top journals like Nature and Cell and so on, um, is that. When a chromosome gets, um, and before I do that, I also need to mention that the micronuclei can also originate from mal-segregation of whole chromosomes. So the chromosomes don't necessarily have to be damaged. It could be that the lagging chromosome happens because there is a defect in the mitotic spindle or in the centromere or in the kinetochore of the chromosome. Mm. Now, if that happens, the chromosome lags behind during anaphase and is left uh, left swimming in between the two daughter nuclei and eventually oh. forms a micronucleus itself. Now, the entrapment of the chromosome in a micronucleus causes, has many consequences. Uh, now, the, the first one is that the and trapped chromosome cannot replicate its DNA properly. It's out of synchrony with the main nucleus. And also, it, it doesn't have all the proteins needed to import the, the building blocks of the DNA. 
Uh, as a consequence, the chromosome gets replicated in patches, but is not ligated. In other words, it gets shattered. Hmm. When the cell goes into the next cycle of division, that shattered chromosome, there are two, two things can happen. One of them, the cell will may catch up and re-ligate the fragments. But when it does that, they're ligated in a random manner. So that in one, one cell division cycle, you get a hypermutated chromosome. Mm. And this has been observed in cancer. So that's the first thing. So micronuclei, the entrapment of chromosomes in a micronucleus in itself is a hypermutation event. Not only because of the um, imbalance in the genetic material in that cell, but also because that chromosome gets hypermutated. Does it still code for proteins? Uh, is, the, is there enough in the micronuclei for it to go on? Is it a bit of garbage that's left behind, no, or no, is no, it no, still it, metabolically active? It would still be metabolically active. Even though it's outside the main nucleus? It eventually can get reincorporated in the main oh, nucleus. Darn. <laughs> right? That's the problem. Okay? Right. So when the, when the membranes dissolve, when it goes to the next cycle, that can happen. Uh-huh. But, but quite often it tends to also get lost. It depends what happens. Anything you can imagine can happen, actually right. happens. This has been followed by, um, you know, uh, video imaging of, of, the, of the cells. Now, the other uh, uh, possibility uh, that's been observed is that the shattered chromosome um, does not get repaired, and the DNA from the shattered chromosome leaks into the cytoplasm. Now, the, the, the presence of DNA in the cytoplasm is a trigger for inflammation. Uh, by that I mean that there is an inflammatory pathway known as the C-gas sting pathway that recognizes DNA in the cytoplasm. This was evolved to detect viral DNA or foreign DNA. Oh, okay. It's also detect, uh, designed to detect mitochondrial leakage of DNA. But even the DNA from micronuclei can trigger this inflammatory pathway and therefore create a pro-inflammatory process. And the pro-inflammatory process is intracellular. At that point, it's an intracellular process that signals? Intracellular, but it also um, produces chemokines to bring uh, right. to, to the immune system to try and take out that damaged cell. Which I'm guessing is the job of the natural killer cells because this will otherwise appear in normal HLA yeah. description That's on right. the cell surface. Okay. Yeah. Now, in... Under normal circumstances, when you when your immune system is working well, that would be ideal. That's why I'm, that's this is part of the senescence process yep. to remove damaged cells. But the problem is that as we age, we have so many cells with micronuclei in them, and because the immune system is depressed, it doesn't get resolved, and you create this pro-inflammatory pro, uh, phenotype, right. which is now thought to be uh, part of what we call inflammaging. Right. So okay. we get into a, into a vicious cycle of uh, micro DNA damage, micronuclear formation, uh, 
triggering of the C-gas sting pathway and, and also the SAS pathway, this is the senescence-associated secretory phenotype pathway, which then triggers inflammation itself. And, and that process itself could generate oxidative stress and, and generate more chromosome damage and micronuclei. So. Okay. So that's where we're at. You basically, once you, once you have uh, a rate of DNA damage, that is too high, you get into this vicious cycle that, that you cannot break out of. I have to ask, why would there not be an apoptotic signal rather than a, mm-hmm. an inflammatory one? A, a cell, if that damage is happening at that rate, I would have yeah, just thought biologically we would yeah. do better to you know, mm-hmm. program the cell to extinguish itself rather than... Yeah, that's true. And um, some of the damaged cells are taken out by apoptosis. Okay. Yeah. But some of the cells uh, do not go down that path because oh. they have, might have also accumulated a mutation in the P53 gene right. involved in apoptosis. So uh, there are many things happening simultaneously. Uh, what we know for certain is that the micronucleus index and the chromosome aberration index increases with age. Okay. And, and also the evidence indicates that those who live longer are tracking at a lower rate of DNA damage than those who are, um, that, than what you would predict from the data from younger age groups. So the one question which would be obvious to any of our listeners is, is this test, is the micronucleus assay, is it a micronucleus assay or a micronuclei assay? <laughs> uh, micronu- I prefer to call it micronucleus assay. Right. Yeah. Is it available? I mean, is it? It sounds like it's going to become one of those indicators of who you focus on as the people who, given their certain yeah. exposure or nutrition, are at yeah. risk of a bad outcome. Is that in the clinical area yet, or are we still years out from yeah. that? Okay, so first of all, micronuclei assays are already in the clinical area in terms of the Howell Jolly body. Right. Yes. Test, right. Um, but um, the test, uh, we have since developed these other tests, the, the lymphocyte assay, which is known also as the cytokinesis block micronucleus assay. The reason is that to the cells that can express micronuclei have to complete one nuclear division. Mm-hmm. And in this test, which I developed a long time ago, um, we overcame that problem because, as you know, when you stimulate cells to divide, not all divide, and that varies between people. Mm-hmm. and is less with age. So the test was not accurate at that point in time when I got involved as a PhD student. So what I did was I solved that problem by developing a method to block the cells that are stimulated, that complete nuclear division at the binucleated stage using a cytokinesis block, mm-hmm. using a, a natural chemical called cytokalasin. And then what you do is you score the micronuclei specifically in the binucleated cells. Okay, which is a light microscopy scoring. Which is, is, light, right? which is light microscopy based, but it's now fully automated mm-hmm. because there's so much interest in this and because it's used by big pharma for screening all their chemicals for oh. their geno- genotoxicity. Uh, it's been automated. Uh, there are many options for automation okay. by image cytometry or even image flow cytometry now, which is the latest development. Okay. So is that accessible to uh, healthcare practitioners, doctors and the like? 
Yeah, so this is our focus is now to make this test accessible and also uh, and also to make it relevant, so to make people aware of its relevance in the clinical setting, which is why we're holding this workshop on micronuclei and disease. For which we'll all be travelling to France just after the ski season is finished. Well, right? you, yeah, if you prefer to do that, you're welcome. <laughs> okay, so it'll be in, 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 Nor- in Rennes, which is not far away from Paris right. in Normandy. Um, so the test is becoming available, and uh, and that's our goal. Okay. So uh, one of the th- I've um, to support this, I, I set up a, a foundation called the Genome Health Foundation, and one of the aspects of that, as well as the HUMN project, which we've been doing for twenty years, mm. is to now uh, focus on this aspect of translating the use of this test into practice. I would think most of our listeners could see the value of this straight away. I mean, the potential for the testing that looks at the damage, the unrepaired damage and the triggers for inflammation is so high on the agenda of practitioners right now. We are, yeah. We've become far more aware of the role of inflammation in ageing and damage. Yeah. And if, you know, a hundred years ago, if we had our wish it was we want antibiotics to kill the bugs and to stop infection and inflammation that way. And having won those battles, what we're left with now is long-term inflammatory responses that we are struggling to control and the drugs are not, you know, not doing a great job. So we're looking for new ways yeah. to determine who's set for a bad outcome versus who's set for, you know, really resilient and, and is probably going to make it through with less effort. So yeah. I can see it being a very valuable thing. Um, just practically, it's not available. You can't write a pathology form right now. So I'm guessing this is something that you're moving to with this project to make it accessible to healthcare practitioners. Yeah, that's right. So the first thing we did was develop, uh, as part of the HUMN project, um, we, we first of all developed a harmonized protocol for this test. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and we've also uh, published uh, OECD guidelines for it, at least for its use in vitro. Right. Um, and also an ISO standard for its use in uh, uh, in the situation of exposure to ionizing radiation. Protocols already published in the International Atomic Energy Agency manual. Um, and... Uh, and of course, we also publish reviews on this topic. So my expectation is that from the workshop we have in May, we will then follow up with a uh, a special issue in one of the key journals on the relevance of micronuclei in disease. And specifically the CBMN assay to uh, mm-hmm. identify that? So is it focused on a practical your, your practical test is you yeah, can so quantify it. Well, the micronutrient assay can actually be performed not just in lymphocytes, but also in epithelial cells right. as well, and it will vary. For example, in cervical cancer, it's been shown that uh, counting micronuclei actually is of prognostic value in, uh, in the disease, in cervical cancer. Okay. But that information currently is not captured with the way that the cervical smears are done. Uh, in buccal cells, it has uh, 
it is also indicative of higher risk of oral oropharyngeal cancer, for example. Okay. Um, so um, uh, the lymphocyte assay, for example, we know it's 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 increased in cancers. For example, at the Anderson Cancer Institute, uh, Randall Zane showed that the uh, micronucleocytome assay. Now, I just I've got a little bit to the side here. When you look at the binucleated cells in the lymphocyte assay, you can measure not only micronuclei, but also you have the advantage because you've got the two nuclei, you can also see these bridges between the two nuclei. Mm-hmm. These bridges occur because of misrepair in DNA breaks, which generate dicentric chromosomes, or it could be dicentric chromosomes due to telomere infusions. So that tells you even more information right. about the chromosomal instability, and you can also measure these buds, which is a way that the cell tries to eliminate amplified DNA. There's a lot more to that story, but to cut a long story short, the uh, what they showed was that uh, this was a study in smokers. What they showed was that the assay could identify. Uh, very accurately, those smokers who are likely to have lung cancer by their frequency of micronuclei, nucleoplasmic bridges, and buds. Mm-hmm. And the fact they have a patent on it, and they replicated their study in Har- uh, uh, at Harvard University. So it was at Anderson and at Harvard. Now, are these cells you need to get from the lung, or are these the lymphocyte assays? No, these are the lymphocytes. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you can predict end organ damage... From the lymphocytes, okay. Yeah, so the patients who who got the cancer or are very likely to have the cancer and therefore could be triaged in this manner mm. um, have got the higher frequencies of micronuclei and they have a patent on it. That can um, be bad news, can't it, because that can make the, uh, the cost of the tests extreme. Well, it depends how it happens. But yes. generally speaking, that's what we did. It's when you look at the literature, that those who develop cancer have got higher micronucleus frequencies, mm-hmm. uh, generally speaking. But it, it's also relevant, for example, in chronic kidney disease, micronuclei are increased. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, so this... those, who, those who are getting, uh, uh, as homocysteine goes up, as you know, in those with kidney disease, homocysteine increases. And high homocysteine is associated with high micronuclei. Right. We observed that long quite a few years ago. How how are they linked though? The higher micronuclei induces uh, or blocks the homocysteine from conversion. Do you? What's the link between those? Well, there are two possibilities. One of them, uh, the kidney with kidney disease, you lose the ability to reabsorb vitamin B12 uh-huh. from the kidney. Oh, of course. And therefore, the patients could become B12 deficient. And and B12 deficiency causes chromosome breaks because it disables the ability of cells to hang on to folate because you cannot convert mm-hmm. 5-metal-tetrahydrofolate to tetrahydrofolate, which is the form that is polyglutamated and stored. Um, and therefore, the folate just goes in and out of the cells. Right. And, and therefore, they, they, they simply can't utilize folate. So that's one possibility. The other possibility is that homocysteine itself could be toxic, right? But yeah. whether it is genotoxic or not is not so clear. 
We tend to think of it as not good for you anyway, irrespective of that, with the high homocysteines and their link to inflammatory cardiovascular and other diseases. Yeah. Um, there, it yeah. does seem to be a difficult job for some people to bring homocysteine under control, and maybe we should be oh, thinking yeah. more of chronic renal disease in those patients. And there could be um, a number of reasons for that as well. It could be that the oxidative stress in the body is not allowing cobalamin to be at uh, mm. oxidation state one to function. Wow. Um, so the, um, there are a number. Uh, uh, so macronuclei are associated with disease for different reasons depending on the disease. And you can also do this assay in different tissues that are... If you can get uh, samples of the tissue, would you yeah. say that it is more, it's going to be more accurate or can we rely on the lymphocytes as a kind of surrogate of disease susceptibility? Yeah, actually the, uh, the micronuclei predict cancer risk across um, all sites. Right. And, uh, you know, some sites more, more than others. But the, so yeah, it's not, what you are seeing, and this has also been shown with DNA methylation, that DNA methylation in the blood cells reflects DNA methylation status in other organs in the body. <laughs> so it's not, um, so it's telling you about the, um, the, I mean, lymphocytes travel throughout the body, so they're experiencing the metabolic environment. Everywhere. Some, there's something everywhere. And because the majority of lymphocytes are quiescent, right? They're not dividing mm. in the blood, which is how they should be. Yeah. Um, and they are long-lived. They accumulate the lesions as they swim around mm. in the body. So they kind of integrate the damage. And, and, and then when we, when we collect them, what we do is we get them to express that damage by making them divide ex vivo, in vitro, and a test tube, and then you can see the damage. And then you simply count the micronuclei? Is that ultimately That's what right. you're doing? That's right. So and the automated then, counting? Yeah. You then wait for about two days until the cells complete nuclear division in the test tube, and then you count the micronuclei in them. I, I started this uh, discussion today with plans to ask you a dozen more questions that has been a very, very exciting discovery for me, I've got to say. The, the micronuclei that Judy Ford brought to our clinic years ago seem to be quite significantly related to the severity of illness, that the more micronuclei that she was reporting, the sicker the patients tended to be. But we, you know, we did what clinicians do, didn't take it any further at the time, let it drop, and now 30 years, 25 years later, it's back yeah. again in a new form, which is... The science seems settled. The yeah. the arguments about the significance of it seem to be settling, and it's moving towards clinical application. Yeah, that's right. Those were early days. I mean, when Judy Ford was doing that, I had only just it was would have been only what three years after I uh, developed the CBMN assay yeah. in lymphocytes. Um, so she pioneered it. Applica it's practical application. Well, she also helped you know many many people who are chronically sick understand more about their illness. Yeah. I think she went much more into pregnancy and successful pregnancy oh, yeah. outcomes after That's right. that. That's um, right. But it is it is fascinating it, it, that the the, the damage yeah. that we see that accumulates that you can actually stare down the microscope, see it. It's not mythical. It's not you know a number on a machine. It's real damage to real chromosomes and a process of inflammation that occurs afterwards, which is clinically really relevant. 
and that micronucleus doesn't disappear. This it's been shown in in uh, in embryos that this the micron the phenotype of having a micronucleus gets passed on. Wow. Across generations, or just is that damage to the mother passed on to the within the lineage of the of that embryo, right? Throughout throughout its life, right? So you these events start can start very early, and 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 they have a, a health influence uh, regarding uh, uh, pregnancy and so on. It's also known that infertile couples have got higher micronuclei than than fertile ones. And it's also increased in miscarriage, right? And so on. So, so there's other other evidences as well. Okay. Uh, they, I mean, in miscarriage, you also have that issue of, of those with uh, raised homocysteine and methylation disorders have very high miscarriage rates. Yeah. And so, oh yeah, I would guess that susceptibility, well, the yeah. concept of genetic susceptibility and ease of damage, will make yeah, sense in evolutionary terms across generations. That's, That's how right. genes get selected for <laughs> and against, isn't it? Yeah. Well, hypomethylation itself increases micronuclei. Mm-hmm. And and the reason for that is that the centromeres, the DNA around the centromeres, needs to be hypermethylated to be structurally intact. Right. If the methylation level is low in the pericentromeric region, that part of the chromosome despiralizes and cannot assemble the kinetochore to probably be segregated. It may also break. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why methylation is also related, micronuclei and methylation. I mean, if you put a demethylating agent in, in a test tube with lymphocytes, you will cause massive amounts of micronuclei. Right. Professor Michael Fennick, I, I had a whole agenda to talk with you about, <laughs> but like most rabbit holes, you go down them and... That has been yep. the most fascinating discussion about something that I thought I knew about, had discarded, and now I see it back on the agenda. I can only hope that, you know, in May next year, that this moves very quickly towards clinical applications so that we can identify as clinicians origins of inflammation and also be able to triage those patients that we see that are on a course to a bad outcome and separate them from the many that may not be. So I want to thank you very much for today and hopefully I'll be able to talk with you again about the other dozen items that I had in mind. Sure, but we probably need a break now. We do need a break now, Michael, and thank you very, very much for today. Okay, thanks Thanks for the interesting discussion. Thank you, Michael. I'm Dr. Mark Donahue, and thank you for joining us today on FXOMICS. If you enjoyed FX Omics today, head over to fxmedicine.com.au for our comprehensive show notes, articles and infographics, and a full listing of all our podcast releases.